Welcome to the Black Belt Business Podcast. My name is Matthew Brenner. And today we have someone that most of you probably already know. This is Master Dave Kovar. He is a titan in the martial arts industry. He currently runs Kovar Satori uh, Martial Arts Schools out in Sacramento and runs Kovar Systems uh, over the course of his 45-year uh, career. Him and his schools and his team has done over $120 million in sales. And the cool thing is that a lot of schools can do great for maybe be a year or a couple of years, but he has been the like anchor and has been like the marker for consistency in the martial arts industry. And not only has trained me personally, but you know, basically everyone on our team looks up to him as a leader in well, everyone looks up to him as a leader in the martial arts industry and in our team. So Master Kovar, thanks for coming today. Oh, it's my pleasure, man. Fun to be here. Yeah, I can't believe you flew all the way in from Sacramento just for this podcast. Just for this podcast, man. <laughs> Appreciate and that. And while I was here, I did some other stuff too. Did some other stuff. Okay, cool. So when we were driving in today to get to this podcast room, we were talking about some of the imposter syndrome that you have doing some things like outside the martial arts industry, some public speaking and stuff like that. And it's so funny because whenever we have someone who starts teaching classes, they have that same exact imposter syndrome, right? And you've been public speaking in front of martial arts schools for a long time now, over four decades, but you still have that imposter syndrome being in front of a group of people that aren't martial arts people. Mm -hmm. So how, now that you're in like this, a new, let's say, uh, not new position, but you're trying out something a little bit different than you've done in the past, doing some public speaking for other business organizations, right. using the, the skills you learned in martial arts for helping them grow their businesses. What type of advice or what do you tell someone who's like a new instructor and they feel imposter syndrome about being on the mat? So I think there's a great quote that goes like this, when place in command, take charge. And imagine for a moment that you're going to lead a, uh, you got to be a general for a bunch of people and you're going to lead them to battle. And, and if you went, well, guys, you know, I think we're probably going to get our butt kicked, but follow me, we'll do our best. That's not the kind of leader you want, right? You want someone that just kind of steps in and owns it. And I think... Like for me, when we're talking about imposter syndrome, it has to do with, a, although I've been, a, I guess, a successful businessman for a long time in, in kind of our martial arts world, when, when I started speaking a bit outside the martial arts industry, it was kind of like, a, it was intimidating. And only because these guys, it's almost like what we do, sometimes I think of it as not real business, you know, it's like <laughs> teaching martial arts, and yeah. I know that's not the case. And so so what I had to do is what I, what I do do, and I would tell that new instructor to do, is just kind of step into the role, you know, assume a position of confidence. First off, you got to know what you're talking about to a certain degree. But I think, you know, anxiety, nerves, that can be a really good thing because it signals to the body that something should be taken serious. You know, so I look at that like, oh man, I'm speaking with a, like I've got maybe I'm going to do a mastermind group and I'm going to have 15 local CEOs that are going to be together with me for three hours. I'm going to be talking about the martial arts lessons and how they can you know, apply to their business and their life. If I wasn't serious about it, if I wasn't like, holy moly, I got to take this, you know, seriously, I, I probably wouldn't do as good a job. I wouldn't prepare as much as what Ben Zoma, who was a first century sage, you know, from a couple thousand years ago, he had a series of questions that he felt if you could answer these questions correctly, you'd live the ultimate life. And one of them is who is a brave person? And the answer is one who is smart enough to be afraid, but takes actions anyway. Mm. And that's how I feel about this. Like, oh man, I got a group of people that I'm going to speak to. Whoa, that's kind of intimidating, but I'm going to do it anyway. 
So is there a certain routine you do before you're going to get in front of people or a certain ritual? Well, so one of the things that I try to do is I don't like reading off notes per se, like a PowerPoint's fine, it's kind of a guide, is, is that I try to, for the most part, I don't memorize because then it doesn't come off authentic, but I'll have, let's say my presentation is going to have seven themes. Okay. So I've rehearsed a lot what I'm going to discuss. So I step out there feeling like a pretty confident in my, in my material. And then I also, it's a really interesting thing is that understand that let's just say, and you've seen this plenty of times in your career where maybe someone stands up in front of a group of people to talk and they get emotional and they're kind of nervous. They're having a time, a hard time getting their words out. Right. Well, what are the people in the room doing? They're wishing them good well. They're not, in most cases, they're not going, oh, look at that guy. You know, you're secretly going, come on, man, you can do it, right? So the point is, most of the time, at least in my world, in the audience that I'm speaking to are a friendly audience that want me to do well. And sometimes we just forget that, you know what mm -hmm. I'm saying? So that's why it's nice to, you know, talk in front of people that are on your team, so to speak. And then the other thing is, you know, deep breathing. It's amazing. You know, what, what a big difference. I did a presentation for the Carmichael Chamber of Commerce last week, and there was a hundred people there. These are local people, right? And I did, I was the lunchtime speaker and I was sitting in the audience and they're doing, and I realized, oh, I'm going to be up in 10 minutes. And it's, not a big deal, but it's a big deal. You want to do well. It doesn't matter the size of the crowd. You always want to give your best effort, right? And I found myself, all of a sudden, the heart starts pumping a little bit and a little dry mouth. And it's like, oh, what do I do? Just make sure my posture's straight and take some nice deep breaths, belly breaths. And what do you know? You just kind of, you know, you, you, all of a sudden, you know, I'm calm and everything goes well. So do you feel or do you have that sense of like almost being a white belt again? Because Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think that it's good, though. That's a good thing. In, in other words, you know, we talked about this morning in our training and Shoshin and Shoshin is a Japanese term. It's one of the five spirits of Buddha when it means beginner's mind. And it's the ability to kind of always be trying to grow and be open minded and receptive. And and once you stop trying to become better, you quit being good. And so for me, it's like I feel like the martial arts has so many messages that are good beyond the martial arts world. And that's kind of what I want to do. I've been speaking, you know, with martial arts friends in the martial arts world for a long time. And I love it and I'll continue to do that. But I kind of feel like I want to share all these amazing secrets that you develop through martial arts with, with other people. And so that's kind of, you know, the next challenge, so to speak. So when you do those speaking engagements, are you getting feedback from the attendees? Like, how does that work? Yeah, it depends on the event, of course, right? You always get people after you do a presentation, the people that liked it come up and say they liked it. It's probably people that didn't. But, but you know, you kind of, I, I think just like a good class, you know, when everybody's engaged, when people aren't looking at the clock, they're not shuffling, they're paying attention, you, you kind of know if you're doing a good job. I've certainly done plenty of presentations that were mediocre at best, you know, mm -hmm. and you can feel it in the room. But, you know, when you are congruent with your message and you've practiced your message, more often than not, if you're giving the right message to the right crowd and they're there voluntarily, you know, it usually goes okay. One of the things that I noticed is you've been teaching me personally a couple times a year, probably for the last decade, mm -hmm. right? It was since I started my first school. And you've always been a really good, you know, public speaker. You command the room, like, you know, you're the instructor of instructors. And the cool part is, like, even though you've had a four-decade career of public speaking, and even though, like, you're teaching so often in front of people, that you're still working on that skill set of, like, being a better instructor. And, like, even today, we had, I don't know, 70 people in the room, maybe, yeah. something like that, maybe a little more. 
And these are all instructors on a Thursday morning. So a lot of them have work or took off work. Some of them, this martial arts is their full-time career. I'd say most of the people in that room, but you know, there's definitely a bunch that this was not their full-time career and they were just you know, taking off to be a part of the class. And I noticed that your public speaking skills have gotten even better. Whether it's cool. not using the word um as much, just like more polish and like how you're making eye contact. Like I always thought you were really good. I didn't necessarily think, oh, he can do a lot better. It was like when I saw it today, I'm like, wow, he did get better. Uh, so I think that's so cool that you cool. keep on working good. on that on that skill set. So you talked about amazing skills that we can pass on to our instructors and our students. But what about like to your kids? Like personally, like how do you get to translate that to your family? Because you're not, you know, master Dave Kovar to them, your dad. Yeah. Uh, so I think probably as far as parenting goes, you know, the most important thing is your example, right? And, you know, I'm not perfect. Nobody else is as well. I've, I've tried as my kids are both grown now. And, uh, but I've always tried when they were younger to really be mindful. Hopefully I am who I am and that's fine. In other words, you know, like, like I'm not a different person when the doors closed, you know, I am who I am. But with that said, I've always tried to like uh, exercise a little higher level of patience when I'm around them, a little higher level of understanding and just really be, it's so easy to want to live vicariously through your kids. And like, for example, my son, like every martial artist, when they have their son or their daughter and, you know, my oldest son, he, you know, I want him to be the best six-year-old martial arts that ever lived, you know, <laughs> and, you know, I'm, I'm putting a gi on him when he's three months old and, and you, you know, that whole deal. And, yeah. and my son, you know, he didn't even have, want to have anything to do with it. And, and finally he had a buddy that started training. So he started training when he was about four, still started young, but I don't even really think he knew he's at the martial arts school until he's about nine years old. You know, then the, <laughs> then the light bulb went on, you know, then it was like, Poof. but I had a friend of mine tell me, you want the world's best 12 year old, or do you want a, a child who grows up? and ends up loving martial arts as an adult. And it was like, ah, big difference, right? Mm. How many people do we know that really push their kids? So I kind of backed off with my kids. They both trained all through high school, you know, both black belts. My son works for me full time and, and my daughter just still practices, uh, you know, still trains. And, and so uh, it's tricky, but I guess the, the leading by example, doing the best you can to kind of really try to be the person that you aspire to be. Mm, very cool. And, Obviously, when people see you from the outside, they're like, okay, Master Kovar has got a bunch of schools in Sacramento and like affiliates in other parts of the country as well. And then, of course, you have your your business consulting side of Kovar Systems. But I know that based on conversations we had, it was not all success the whole time, right? Oh, there was definitely absolutely. been some, of course, some things that have been yes. difficult. So I know at some point you tried like a massive expansion, right? And I think most people don't know about that, but like, I always think it's important to share some of those like failures we've had. Like, I don't know, did you see, I posted on Facebook maybe a year ago, like I lost a bunch of money in crypto like overnight. Did you see anything no, about uh -uh, that? Uh -uh. I'll tell you now. So I had one of my friends runs a, a crypto YouTube channel, okay. right? And it grew very, very fast. Like, you know, he's got like, uh, you know, over 100,000 subscribers. And, and I didn't even know he knew anything about crypto. Like, he told me he had a YouTube channel. And I was like, oh, it's about basketball? Mm -hmm. He's like, no. I'm like, what else would it be? Like, what else are you good at? He's like, crypto. I'm like, crypto? What do you know about crypto? But he was doing research all day, every day. And I got super into it. And obviously, martial arts is my income. And this was like what I was doing with the profits, right? Or some of the profits. And... I invested through a company called Voyager, which was started by the guy who ran E-Trade. Mm -hmm. So it's someone who's been doing it for a long time. He's got like, he's a big, big person in the financial industry. And I wasn't like 
necessarily investing a ton of money in like speculative coins and hoping to make a lot. It was like, oh, okay, cool. Like they were paying, I think it was like 8% or 9% interest. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh my God, like I already own some like investment properties. And I'm like, oh my God, I can either put money in investment property, which is like a ton of work and a ton of management, or I can flick my thumbs a couple of times and put it in this account and I'm going to get make 9%. Like I'd much rather do that. It's way faster, way easier. Right. So I got all caught up in the hype of everything, put a bunch of money into it. I put in about 187000 over the course of like six months. You know, first I started small. First it was like, you know, I'll put in like 500 and then 1000 2000 And then I was like, what am I doing? I might as well, like, I can invest in a house right now or I can just like do this. So I just did that. I was like, all right, I'm going to put like 80000 in at once. So at first it was doing amazing. Like everyone else, I feel like a freaking genius, right? Like, you know, my account's up like 300% and it's like unbelievably big. And it's like, what the hell is happening? This is ridiculous. And then of course, like there's all these rumblings in the market, it starts to go down. And then one day I wake up to the news that the company, Voyager, mm -hmm. which is a publicly traded company on the stock market, it's not some like small sure. or whatever, yeah. that they're going bankrupt and now have no access to any of my money. So I didn't lose money because the market went down. The market went down a little bit, but like I wasn't in a bad spot. Like that would have been fine. Like if I invested in something that was like difficult or risky and sure. I lost it, that's my fault, right? But this was a giant company going bankrupt overnight and I lost all that money. So like oh, all the man. profits after tax, you know, maybe not all the profits, but a lot of the profits after tax money that I invested for that year, mm -hmm. gone overnight. And I shared that on Facebook and not for sympathy, but just would be like, yo, like here's how I got caught up in the hype train. I should have been doing it. And like whenever things are too good to be true. Mm -hmm. They usually are. They usually are, right? I don't think you had that same experience, but something like probably similar sure. to your range. So tell me about the time then for people that don't know about when you tried to expand really quickly and the kind of like what happened. Yeah. So my brother and I was my business, older brother, Tim was my business partner for 20 years. So I did, I started in 1978 and my brother came on in 1987, same month I got married, by the way. Mm -hmm. So as my brother said, you're going to get married twice this month, once to your <laughs> wife and once to me. Right. <laughs> and so we are, we were business partners up until he retired in 2007. But in the early 2000s, uh, we had four locations, business is good, a lot of real estate, money in the bank, just, you know, everything's great. Not really having a real plan as to how we're growing. We're just kind of, when someone's ready and a location looks good, we'll, we'll consider it. And we got approached by this VC, this gentleman, this Wall Street venture capitalist that was actually an attorney that made his uh, bones taking a, a cottage industries and giving them a national presence. A really good guy. I still have a relationship with him. Mm -hmm. And my first name is Rick. And long story short, I wasn't really that interested in, you know, signing on with like, you know, doing a big national presence. My brother was really excited about it. And I warmed up to the idea. So after about a year of negotiating, this would have been now 2000. 2005, uh, we signed on. And in the process- When you say you signed on, what does that mean? Well, we brought him on as a partner. We In we, your current business, like he yeah. became an equity partner? Yes, absolutely. He bought wow. into our company and oh, we wow. got a, we fused with a bunch of capital. A lot of it invested in stock and then some of it in, in loans and like millions, right? And I, I mean, I've done Wall Street tours where you go into the office, uh, you meet with a bunch of guys and do your pitch. I've done that a bunch of times, right? It was really interesting Wait, experience. so you were trying to raise money? More money. We got some initial money 
money, but then we- So you got some seed money. Seed money, get it started, and the next generation was a little more. And in order mm. to do that, my friend Rick knew a bunch of people. So we probably had five or six different st- spots in, you know, in New York where we'd go to a group that were looking for investments. Same with, in, in, went to Florida and did the same thing. And, and actually, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with the Angel Network. It's like Angel Investors, every city has one. Yeah, uh, it's so, like Shark Tank, but real life. Yeah, exactly. And, and actually the, the Sacramento Angels, half their kids trained at one of our schools. That, that was the quickest raise they'd ever done. Like, you know, it was like just all the guys got their checkbooks out and signed on with us. So all of a sudden they we just had, loved the program. Exactly. And they like, saw uh, what was going on. And, and so we raised several million dollars. How, and, can, do, do you mind if I ask how much? Uh, it's like probably... I want to say 3.5, something okay. like that. I, and I these are from like your students, parents. Some of that, a lot of it is like legitimate VC money too. Okay. So, so we, we had a big company that, that was the kind of the main backer. And so all of a sudden we went from four locations to 20 locations in a year and a half. And put in perspective, these aren't franchises. These are corporate owned locations. Mm, okay. And keep in mind right now, this is like 2006. Retail prices, commercial prices are t- through the roof, right? This is right before the bubble, right? Mm-hmm. Before the- So you're paying a premium. Big time, and we have bigger. So I remember I was with all these really. We'd do these white, uh, you know, we whiteboard sessions where I'd meet with all these high level business guys that had been doing this forever. And and I'm thinking, man, I think this is too fast. But I'm. What do I know? I'm just the dumb karate guy. I really, <laughs> literally remember thinking that. And I was charged. I, my job was to, to to develop instructors, and that's because uh, uh, we'd already been doing that quite a bit. And and so. We, we got to 20 locations and actually uh, most of them were pr- doing actually pretty good. Not Where was that. this at? In Sacramento? It's like? primarily Sacramento. No, we had, we had uh, 14 schools in, in Sacramento. We had three on the East Coast and uh, one in Portland and two in the Bay Area in San Francisco area. Okay. And so what happened was is we were do, kind of doing just-in-time money, meaning, okay, we were, you know, as long as we make our quota, there's going to be more money we can borrow and we're going to be... We're going to be raising money for the next few years. We're not going to make any money for several years, right? We're just going to kind of grow into it. And and that was the plan. And, and, and what happened is we missed one of our quarterly lines or the goal that we were trying to hit. And all of a sudden, the money got really expensive to do the next round of financing, okay? Because you remember, if you're spending 150 k at least to start open up a school, times that by 10, you know, then, then, then we're losing money on it. it. I mean, we were losing at one point about 150K a month, mm. okay? How did you develop instructors that fast? So I had a super strong bench already. And uh, that's when I, we got really creative. You know, one of the things I did is I went back and you've heard me talk about it before and I look at my inactive roster Okay, one of the things I did, I was at this movie theater. This is right when we're in expansion mode. And it, it, with my wife and I are at the movies. And there's a gal that takes my ticket. Her name was Erlene. And she worked for me through high school. She grew up in the, in the dojo. She goes, oh, Mr. Kovar, she gave me this big hug. And I go, Erlene, what are you doing? You know, she because I thought, I'd heard, she, last I remembered, she'd gone away to college. And she goes, oh, sir, you know, I went to, away from school for a couple of years, but it just wasn't for me. So I'm back here kind of trying to figure out what I want to do for a living. And I look and I go, boom, light bulb goes mm-hmm. on. I go, hey, man. We loved, uh, you know, I loved having you as an instructor and a student. Why don't you come back and consider it? Are you kidding? Her comment was, I thought once you quit, you couldn't come back. And it, I didn't <laughs> even know where she got that from. But I've maybe, heard that so many times. Yeah, may, maybe they were thinking, maybe I gave her the talk like, Arlene, you know how hard it is to get started once you leave? You know, yeah. so, who knows? But that, And it got me thinking, interesting. So what I did is I went through my list of all my inactive students, people that I call them quitting for the fumes. And that's car fume and perfume. You know, cars mm-hmm. and girls, you know, you get to that age and where you, and I started picking up the 
phone and uh, calling old students, old black belts, and it worked surprisingly well. So that was one way. And then we did a lot of acquisition, you know, and then we, we just- Can I ask a question? Were you like paying them full-time salaries right away? Like you walk it, in, you it, it, de it depends. Totally depends on the situation. It's kind of, you apply the gas as far as you need to. What, you know, the whole idea was to have a lot of people in the warmer, you know, kind of like kind of on the side. So I'd have a conversation with you, I'd see down, you'd come down and we'd do a little training. I'd give you a couple months of free training, let's say. And we just kind of see if there's a fit. And in, if in a perfect world, you, you were living local and could work part-time, develop the position, you know, into the position, that would be great. In a few cases, I came across guys that were so good and ready and needed a job now. We just, you know, we made it work, right? Mm -hmm. We had money in the bank. We could do that. And then what happened was, is all of a sudden, we realized that the money's running out. We've got all this massive debt, all these locations with personal guarantees on them, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And it was pretty scary times. So this would have been like the lowest moment in my career would have been December of 2007. And we're completely out of money and we're still losing money every month. By the way, I was coaching schools. So at the time I'm telling you how to run a successful martial arts school and I'm going to the, hoping my ATM is going to work to get me groceries that day for my family because I had spent every dollar I had personally. I'd sold properties. I'd cash in my 401k. I'd taken my kids' college funds all just to fund the business. You know, just, and then, you know, then it's, it's like Monday and I'm sitting there with my business partner, my still, who's still my business partner, Dave Chamberlain, who came in right in the middle of this and, and uh, thinking, all right, how are we going to make payroll of $23,000 at one o'clock this afternoon? You know, and trying to figure that out. And then walking down, you know, that's 10, 10 minutes to nine, walking out at nine o'clock and doing a staff meeting. You got 50 people in the room and you're trying to get them all excited about the week. It was a hard time. And what was the goal? Was goal to expand and then sell it, or just well, have a big corporate company? Well, yeah, they, the, I, the intention was to get to 100 schools by 2010, okay. and then figure out the next level. Okay. And so, if we could have done a few things different, we maybe it would have been a different. But the bottom line is, it is what it is, and your experiences are what make you. And I have no regrets. I have spent the last decade or more just basically paying down debt. We could have filed for reorganization if we wanted. But I had all these people that I knew that invested in our company that just didn't feel right. You know what I'm saying? It's like, uh, and I had one interesting story. Uh, one interesting thing happened to me is one day, my, my business partner, Dave Chamberlain, and I are trying to figure out how we're going to get through this. And all our advisors are telling us, man, you just need to file for reor bankruptcy. There's no way you guys are going to get through this. You have too much debt. So it's all because you missed that one month well, no, that was cascaded? The, no, that, that was the thing that kind of changed the tide. But okay. we were already, like, it was funny money. Like, I had... There's millions in the bank. Oh yeah, let's put a let's build a new wall at this location. I didn't really quite register that you know you're, someday you're gonna have to pay back this money, right? Yeah. And we weren't being stupid with it, but we just kind of there was an assumption that I'd never failed at anything. The schools had always done well, and we'd figure this out too, right? Mm -hmm. And so all of a sudden, it's clear that our model wasn't working. The amount of time it was taking to get a school to profitability was not in line with our expansion plans. Mm -hmm. And and then by this time, a lot of the money we have some stuff in Series A stock, which we're paying interest on, right? And then we have a bunch of borrowed money too, that we we're paying super high interest. So now it's like all of a sudden the clock is ticking there mm. and we realize this week, there's no way we can expand and we can't keep all 20 doors, schools open. There's no way we're burning through way too much money. There's, and so we had to think what's, what's the next step. So we basically went from 20 locations back down to eight in about six months, either through closing or giving or selling schools uh, to get to there. And then we were still not even at break even. You know, we still, because we still had some rents that we had to pay for because they were personal guarantees, even if we weren't in the building. And, so know. like you, like your personal house was on the line. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Were you like 
crapping your pants? Like, oh well, my God. it was, I tell you what, it was a challenging time to be sure. But, you know, I tell you what, adversity doesn't make the person, it reveals the person. And like, I know my business partner, it like was just amazing through this process. And I wanted to be the best version of that. You know, so we just got up every day, rolled up our sleeves and did what we could. So I, I back to, I was saying December in 2007, I had this interesting thing happen. We have this guy that's saying, man, you guys got to file for reorganization. There's no way you're going to get this paid off. And my partner, Dave goes, you know what? I'm at my best when things are at their worst, but there's hope. And that's what I felt like we were. And I, and I'm kind of leaning towards maybe we should think about this, you know, this, this bankruptcy is an option and not really want to do it. But I went down and I, with my sanity was training. Okay. So I went down right after that and I'm doing some jujitsu and there's two other guys and we're training. And one of the guys takes my back, sinks in a choke. And then he mounts on top and he's got this funky gi choke and he's lying on my chest. And uh, you know the feeling, you've done enough jujitsu to know that kind of that claustrophobic feel when mm -hmm. you're super fatigued and mm -hmm. you, you're going to have to possibly tap. And it's not the end of the world, right, if you tap. But I remember thinking, I started kind of to panic a little bit. Oh, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to tap. And part of the issue was he was my student and my ego didn't want to tap to him, right? right. And, but I look up and there's my nephew, Gordon, who's also a jujitsu practitioner. I see that he's watching and I realize, okay, if I pass out, he'll stop. So I don't have to tap, not yet, okay? Because mm -hmm. if I pass out, I'll, you know, he'll stop the match. So I take a breath and I adjust my grip and I slowly fight through this, okay? And when I got done, I had this epiphany. It was like, just boom, it hit me. So, you know, when it comes to our business, we could tap out if we wanted to, but we don't have to, not yet. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my my business partner and I made a plan. The first month we called all our landlords and said, guys, we're not paying rent this month. Throw us out if you want. We've got no money, so there's nothing you can do about it, but we'll pay 10% more next month, and we'll do that until we're finished off. So that got us through one month. That got us through December. And then in January, we'd call all our vendors, and we said, sorry, guys, we're not paying anybody this month. Kind of the same thing. In February, we went to all our program directors and said, we need to get two paid and full uh, black belts, get club memberships out of you. I'm not a big fan of lots of paid and fulls, but at that moment, we had to do what we, we had to do. So we did that. We got through that month, and... And really that, we just fought battle tooth and nail from 2007 to 2010 before we even broke even, before we mm. got to back to where we This is after you already dropped 12 of the schools. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So can I ask a question about that? The, the schools that dropped, what happened with those instructors? Were you like, I'm so sorry? Like, well, a lot of them, uh, you know, a lot of them, we either, like we acquired schools that we ended up giving back and doing a negotiation. Let's just say how I ended up in, in Seattle is, excuse me, in, in Portland is I had a, a friend and student of mine that had a school up there that wanted to be a part of what we were doing. So we acquired his school. Okay. And the plan was to open up a whole bunch of locations in Portland with him being the district manager for them. Okay. And when things weren't working out, I turned right back around and said, guess what, man, you know, you're on your own. You can have your school back. Sorry, it didn't work out. And so we were able to savor all the relationships. And there was a couple schools in Sacramento. We went from 14 schools to eight schools in Sacramento. And we really, we kept the best. There was a few people that we had to let go in the process, but we expanded so, so quick that we had a bunch of people that were really good, like second instructors that were actually managing locations. So we ended up, when we cut back, with just an all-star class, an all-star, mm -hmm. you know, and you've met a lot of my team members. I got an amazing team, and most of those guys are still with us after all this. And so they've been through battle. You know, we've been through war together for years. And then we spent basically another 10, 12 years just paying down debt, and we're just at the tail end of it now, Yeah, actually. Wow. Yeah. So all these 
Wall Street guys or VC money was like, hey, it's not working. Just declare bankruptcy. Cool. Well, the guys that were not uh, that, that were invested in our company didn't want us to do that. Oh, it's yeah, going to yeah. affect them. Yeah. But other people from the outside that are advisors, people that we know that are thinking, I don't know, you know, this plan isn't working out. Maybe you want to consider that. And and by the way, I think it's really important to say that bankruptcy has an important place in America. And a lot of people say that's one of the things that makes American business so strong is we can risk things, right? And uh, like you don't end up in debtor's prison forever, right? right? But in my, so there's people that have declared bankruptcy because they had you and they had no choice and started over again. And that's fine. I'm not passing judgment on anybody else. But for me, it's not something I wanted to do. You know, I wanted to know that those angel investors, you know, that, you know, we're going to go to battle for them. You know what I'm saying? And uh, it's, so it, it feels really good now to have been through that and our primary VC company that funded the majority of it, they're completely out of the picture. We've paid them down off completely. And it feels real good to know that we, you know, we, we took care of that. I mean, it's just amazing to think you could have like wiped your hands clean of it and not had any debt, which is probably what 95% of people would have done in that situation. I don't know if I would have gone the virtuous route like you went? Like I, well, I, I'm not trying to act like I'm a martyr. You, you know, like it was what an amazing thing we did. I, I'm not trying to say it for that. Like, you know, I don't know if it was the right thing to do, but it's just both my business partner and I felt in our gut like this was the right thing to do. Mm. And in the bigger scheme of things, you know, my life would be so different. And I don't know that it would be better if we didn't do this, you know, yeah. maybe I'd have more, you know, because I had to kind of almost start over again to a certain degree financially. And maybe I'd have more money in the bank. If we did it another way. But I know that most of my team that works for me would not be around if we did that. And yeah, I would not be here with you because we wouldn't have started traveling doing part of the reason why I was doing so many seminars is to try to, you know, start to cover systems is to really for, try to generate as much income to pay down debt as I could. Right. So that got yeah. me really out on the seminar circuit. I would have never done this otherwise, yeah. you know, so it's like, you know, your life is a sum total of all the experiences you had to date. And I've had a great life and I, I wouldn't change anything. It's just as long as you try to use those experiences for things that you can do going forward. So you're still paying off that debt now? Or you're at just, the tail end of it? Just the right? tail end of it, yeah. Wow, okay. Are you, do you think like when that's officially done, done, like there's zero, you're going to feel like, oh my gosh, I was crazy? Yeah, or, well, I'm already, that? we're already could do it. We're just negotiating, you know, the final, we're basically done. We're okay. on the tail end and it's just a matter of like some, just tying up some loose ends, so to speak with that. And it feels good to get the, it feels good to, that's why when COVID hit, I know the action team did amazing over COVID and we did quite well over COVID, but I wasn't as worried as a lot of people. It's kind of like one of the things that being in business now for 45 years, there was nothing like that experience as far as, you know, having, but I've had plenty of bad months. I've had plenty of years that were hard to get through and every challenge you can imagine, or most every challenge, uh, you know, we've been through when it comes to staffing and you name it. And so when COVID came along, it was like, ah, I just kind of knew we were going to get through it. What do you got to do? You roll your sleeves up, take a breath and do as much as you can that day. And Turn on the next, Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and the next day, you know, get up and do the same thing. You know, that's kind of been a, I think it's very important that there's a story about this uh, old wise man. And he's training this young, you know, disciple, right, in the ways of the world. And they have all these long walks in the forest. And the disciple's always asking the old wise man all these questions. And and, and finally, uh, and he's worried, don't you worry about this, sir, and that. And, and finally, the, the old wise man points at this big old piece of granite and says, how much does that boulder weigh? And the young disciple looks at it and says, well, it's, you know, this many cubic feet wide. And this, I'd say it weighs 960 pounds. And the, the old wise man says, well, 
Maybe, but only if you lift it up. Meaning a lot of us have a lot of stuff that we're holding up that we don't need to hold up, if that makes any sense. Like when it comes to stress, the, one of the things about this whole experience that got me to be able to imagine you have the weight of the world on your shoulders, hey man, just set it down on the couch for a minute and <laughs> enjoy the scenery, right? And pick it up when you need to, so to speak. And, mm-hmm. and that's uh, been a real valuable lesson. It's kind of like, you know, you've heard me say this before, but take care of the days and the years take care of themselves. You know, mm-hmm. what is a successful life? It's made up of successful years, which are made up of successful months, weeks, days. So really there's only today. So what does that mean, man? Try to exercise today, you know, try to learn something new, try to treat your relationships right, try to work hard, try to find something that gives you pleasure. You guys, you know what I'm saying? Do that yeah. today and then get up tomorrow do the same thing and it's of course it's nice to have a long-term plan and you should but you can't worry about where you're going to be in three friggin' years like it's kind of like imagine i'm a are you a gardener i know we've talked about this a little bit i'm not a gardener i like to live vicariously through your garden okay all right right, right, i'm not appreciate it i'm not i'm not much of a gardener but i do enjoy every time we talk you're like yeah yeah well but especially tomato plants and if you plant a bunch of like some years I'll do it from seed. Sometimes I'll just go to Home Depot and get some little mini tomatoes, right? I haven't decided this year if I'm doing it from seed, I have to start pretty quick. But uh, if you take your tomato plants and you plant them, what do you what do you really need? Well, you need find a place that's got plenty of sun and you know good fertile soil. Keep the weeds away and water it every day. And your rest you leave up to nature, right? But if I, if every three days I pull it up by the roots to see how it's growing, it's not going to help the process, right? Mm-hmm. So I kind of think that's a good way to kind of live your life, right? Have some long-term goals, right? But then just every day kind of work towards that. And all of a sudden you look back, six months have gone by and you've made great progress. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I think that resonates exactly like, so one of the things that I've always done is like I have like have goals that are 10 year goals, right? It sits in a Google Doc somewhere in my drive. I don't look at that often, like once a year. But I also have a goals meeting I do with a couple of close friends of mine once a month. We sit mm-hmm. down, we have our personal and business goals. That's great. We just run through them and they're in different industries than me. Right. It's kind of an accountability thing. Exactly. And like there's plenty of months where I feel like crap going in that meeting. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh my God, it's going to be terrible. Some months I'm like, ah, oh, I can't wait for this. I'm going to tell them all the good stuff. But one of the things I'm doing differently this year for me is like focusing on the tasks and the goals, the tasks that will get me to achieve my goals and not on the goals themselves. Mm-hmm. So, like, okay, totally. I want to make this amount of money. Okay, I don't really care if I make that amount of money. I just know I need to do these four things today. I need to message this amount of people. I need to call this amount of people. I need to do this, this, and this. And only focus on those consistent activities. Because I know if I do those, that thing will just happen naturally. No, so I think that's really a good way to look at it. There's a book that I read last year. It's called by a guy named Boyd Vardy. Have you heard? It's called mm-hmm. A Lion Tracker's Guide to Living. Mm-hmm. And uh, anyway, Boyd Vardy is a third or fourth generation a safari guide in South Africa. And it's, his grandfather or his great-grandfather purchased like 120,000 acres somewhere in South Africa. And they originally, 100 years ago, they were doing big game hunting as in, you know, hunting the lion and shooting the lion, right? Now, what Boyd has done is he's brought the, over time, their 100,000 acres just became really not green friendly. I mean, it really changed and eroded away and he wanted to bring it back to its original pristine space. So that's what he spent the last 20 years doing. And in the process, he stole a safari guide, but they take pictures of the animals and whatnot. Well, anyway, so in this book, there's this one line he talks about that that is kind of along the lines of what you're talking about. I think it's so profound. And he tells a story about when he was a kid, he learned to, to track by this guy, his name was Reneus, and Reneus was considered one of the greatest trackers in South Africa. And so one morning, Reneus is getting ready to go track a lion, and Boyd goes, where are you going to go to find the lion? And Reneus goes, I don't know where I'm going, but I know how I'm going to get there. Hmm. 
And, and he goes, what do you mean? Well, th- th- what I'm going to do when I hear a roar, I'm going to go to where I think the roar was and I'm going to look for tracks and eventually I'll find a track and I'm going to follow those tracks. And when I see some lion scat, I'm going to see which direction. And eventually if I follow that, if I stay tuned to what's going on, I'm going to find the lion. Mm. So the whole point of, I don't know where I'm going, but I know how I'm going to get there is like, you don't know exactly where you're going to, you, you, but you know, if you have a productive day, it's going to help you get closer to that. Right. That, and that's kind of what you're saying. And that's kind of how I look at it too. Like, I don't always, I don't know what my next chapter in my career is going to be, but I know that the habits that I'm trying to cultivate and continue are going to help me get there. Mm. So people hear a little bit more about like the personal side of Master Kovar. So every time I talk to you, we talk about two things together. We talk about hiking, which I know we both like really, really adore and love. And we talk about gardening. So are those like your two major things that you do to put that heavy rock, that boulder down? And actually probably martial arts is at the top of the list. for Okay. Me. Yeah. Okay. That's still like, especially right now, I love it all, but probably like, you know, couple good grappling sessions, you know, can make a big difference. So that's still like my main passion is training. It's just, you got to do it smart and, you know, age appropriate. And then of course, yeah, other things, absolutely, you know, being in nature, hiking in nature, gardening is great. My kids and I ski a lot. So in the winter time, mm. we'll be up at Lake Tahoe. You don't get injured skiing? Well, I, you certainly can. It's a, it can be a dangerous sport. I've been doing it since I'm a little kid. And so Have I'm pretty good. I've got banged up a lot, but I've never, nature. no man, never had, but I also don't take any chances to, it's kind of like, imagine that I'm a good enough skier to, I can get down the hill and uh, I don't go crazy. I don't do the real dangerous stuff or the real steep stuff. I take my time and I'll usually go all day without falling, you mm. know, uh, and, uh, uh, you certainly can push yourself. So there's a lot of choices, but for me, it's just being out man with my family, you know, in nature. And it's a pretty fun experience. Yeah. I just skied for the first time uh, this last winter. And so I'd never done it before. And my niece and nephew brought me out there and they're like uh, 12 and 10 or something. So they're super excited to teach Uncle Matt how to ski. And I know nothing about it. And they're just like giving me their lessons. Yeah, you probably and fell a lot that day. I fell a lot. And so we ended up going, I think, two or three times. And like one of the times they brought me down a hill that was probably not appropriate for me, but I honestly didn't know. I didn't know uh, diamond, blue diamond. Yeah, blue diamond. That's like an intermediate hill. Yeah, you okay. probably should have been on the green circle. Yeah, uh-huh. exactly. So I was on the blue diamond, which I didn't know. I'm uh-huh. just like going down. And I just like crashed. And blue like, square. I'm sorry. It's black diamond. Yeah, black anyway, diamond, blue square, yeah, whatever. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I just hit my head so freaking hard on the ground, like, you know, blah, and like, I'm wearing a helmet, obviously. And I just like, I feel like, oh man, I, think I just had a mild concussion. And I was like dizzy getting up. And I was yeah, like, probably did. And I've never really gotten a big injury before. Not, not that this was big, it was yeah, minor, but like, I've never, I've been doing martial arts my whole life. I've like definitely sprained ankles, toes, fingers, mm-hmm. little things here and there, but I've never had a major injury. And I'm like, man, if I'm gonna have a major injury, it's gonna be from skiing, I think. <laughs> so I'm No, it's definitely, it. the learning curve on it is is pretty severe. I've been doing this since like four years old. You know, I'm good enough to get down the hill okay. So not that, now I gotta watch this because I'm going skiing next Thursday. Oh my I God, watch this talk, it's it like, for you. knock on wood here, yeah. yeah. So how has your training changed as you've gotten older? Do you train differently to stay yeah, safe absolutely. and make smart decisions? Absolutely, yeah. 
So I think the big difference is, is like uh, the first thing is, is as you age as a martial artist is that you try not to focus on what you used to be able to do, focus on what you can do. For me, that's like a flexibility thing. Like I'm not as flexible as I once was and, and it takes me longer to warm up to build a kick. And You're I not doing 540s to the head? No, not too often. Mm. But I think for me, it's a couple things. It's first off, really consistent. Martial arts for me is not just martial arts, it's health, fitness, martial arts. So eating clean, not perfect, but eating, you know, close to what you think you should eat. Uh, exercising on a regular basis, I think is the foundation. Like I don't do martial arts for exercise. I exercise so I can do martial arts. Mm. And so I think that's super important. And then I follow a rule, I call it the 80% rule, which means I rarely, if ever, go past 80% of my capacity. When it's like, when I start getting really fatigued, that's when injuries always happen. Whether it be at the gym, like lifting some heavy weight or doing one more round of sparring or, you know, grappling when you're really tired and you got that one more, you got the big guy that you go yeah. with. That's when it happens. So I try to always be kind of in control and I, I try to always train in a kind of a playful energy versus like an intensity energy because that's kind of when I've been injured the most is that would be the case. And the other thing is I never, ever, ever do anything intense or ballistic without doing a really thorough warm up. Yeah. Like just like today, we spent 15 minutes. They didn't really know we were doing it because we we're doing some fun martial arts drills, but 15 minutes just warming up before we really did anything. Because I, I think that every time you don't do that, when you're younger, you don't need to stretch, right? But as you age, it becomes more and more important to warm hmm. that body up before you get going. So now when you train, you do a lot more warming up. How long do you take to warm up usually? eight minutes okay. you know, not that long right. but before younger you just sure hop in yeah, you cares. walk in and you you know we call it you know you, you kind of just start right i mean how many times i'm sure you've done that as well you don't even really warm up you just start kicking right cold and you can do that when you're a teenager you, you know but those habits don't serve you so the sooner you can start developing the habit of warm-up it's going to serve you later on your future self will thank you for that because the little injuries you get now they're going to come up more apparent in the future Mm. So besides the warming up, in terms of like, let's say your nutrition or your fitness, like what are you doing outside the martial arts school, outside the mat? So first and foremost, I'm pretty focused on, I call it the six pillars of health that I focus on. And they're exercise, rest, nutrition, stress management, risk avoidance, and recharging. Okay. Right? So exercise, I try to exercise pretty much every day. I will miss a day or two a month. I didn't exercise two days ago. So the day I flew out to the East Coast and I had an early flight and I didn't worry about it. I could have made time. You can always make time. But yeah. besides that, you know. What I, are you doing? Are you weightlifting? Are you doing calisthenics? Yes. Okay. The, so whatever we have day. access to. Yeah. Whatever, like, like if when I'm in the road this morning, it was a real easy workout. It's, but it's enough to be a workout. I did 100 push-ups, 100 squats and a thorough warm up and warm down. So literally 15 minutes. But it's enough to where, as my dad said, a little something's better, a lot of nothing. And mm -hmm. then I try to really be mindful of my sleep. Uh, I try to eat relatively clean um, the majority of the time. For me, that means primarily plant-based, right? And then managing stress. So like, what does that mean exactly? Meditation, of course, is, and it's scientifically, there's no doubt about the fact that's a valuable thing to do to manage your stress, but it's mm -hmm. also really how you interpret things. It's not just like, for example, you can decide to let things annoy you or not. It's sometimes it can be a decision. Like if someone cuts you off in traffic, Okay. You can let that really get like today, getting to the studio here, we were downtown Philly for quite a while mm -hmm. trying to negotiate traffic and find parking and you didn't let it bother you. You were just kind of calm and easy, right? Well, you could have just as easily been stressed out and honking a horn and irritated. It's kind of a, you have a certain amount of control over that, right? And what you focus on. So I do my best to not 
let things you know, bother me. Like, for example, I travel a lot and when a plane is delayed or connection is tight, or I just try not to like, make a conscious effort to not let that, things that are out of my control, control my emotional mood, right? And I'm not always successful. I've had plenty of moments where I got upset about something that was out of my control, but, the, but being mindful of it really helps. And then risk of avoidance has to do with being training safe, but, you know, just things like, you know, washing your hands and putting your seatbelt on and not bungee jumping, you know, that kind of <laughs> stuff that, that can make a difference. And then recharging has to do with finding something that brings you joy, you know, whether it be a hike, a walk in nature, listening to music that you can do on a regular basis. Mm. One of the things I love is when people compare martial arts, it's like a moving meditation, mm-hmm. right? And for me personally, I realized that I have every part of my day where there could be a gap, I would fill it with something, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So I'm taking a shower, I'm listening to a podcast. I'm at the gym, I'm listening to music or a podcast. Mm-hmm. Looking on ESPN, I'm on the toilet. Like what I'm always like doing something and it's like you never have a chance to be bored mm-hmm. or think. Mm-hmm. And like one of my actions I'm doing this year, uh, not meditating, but like just removing some of the layers. Like, okay, like now I don't take a shower with the podcast on. Mm-hmm. I know it sounds so stupid and easy, but like, that's when I help just my mind will just wander and think about things. And it's like, it doesn't need, not every moment needs to be filled with like, I need to learn or have a gap in it. You need to let those gaps be gaps. I think it's super important. Like I don't during the week, rarely, I can't say ever, but rarely do I listen to anything when I'm driving. Wow. And that's my time. And if I do during the week, it's a podcast, right? This podcast always. Yes, yes. yes. (laughs) But, but usually that's my time to think. And I, I, and like when I run or when I exercise, a lot of people like run with music on or, but for me, it's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. For me, I'm trying to be in the moment totally. So like when I'm outside, I'm not listening to music and it, it, it just works for me. So I think what you said about letting your mind being bored is that's where all creativity happens. If you're always stuffing it with stuff, you don't ever give a chance for your unconscious to kind of drop something into your head, you know? Yeah. I heard this from Alex Formosi. Are you familiar with him? Like the, I know the name. Yeah. It's just like big giant Jack business dude, ran a bunch of gyms and a gym mastermind. Now just does a lot of business consulting or I think he, he purchases businesses anyway. So one of the things he talks about is like a lot of people will read just for the sake to read and to say they read a book or like read as many books as they can, but they never actually take action on anything. And they just read, he calls it mental masturbation. You're just doing it to feel good, but you have like, not really doing anything sure. for you. And that's like another thing that I thought about, like, okay, instead of me, I used to have goals. I want to read 25 books this year. Okay. And I do a pretty good job. I hit it most of the time. But now it's like, I don't care about that. I want to hit like six to 10 books. If that, yeah, probably closer to, to like six and just like take action on it yeah. and read the same book a couple times, even though it's kind of boring. So it really sinks in. I, I've read whole books. I can't tell you anything about them. I have no idea what I read. So back to martial arts stuff. Obviously you've been doing this for a long time and you've been consulting for a, a long time as well, helping other school owners and um, grow their schools. And by the way, like with my, my brother and I, like, and just even on my own, like um, I visited hundreds of schools and martial arts schools, whenever you travel anywhere, mm-hmm. right? Like, even when I was like a, a young kid when I was like 10, 11, 12, like uh, if my brother was around and we're going to Disney World, like- He's bringing you to a school We're somewhere. gonna go check out a school somewhere in Orlando, right? And a lot of times like we'll hear schools that they say they're doing great, right? And you walk, oh, we have 500 members. And you walk in there, it's dirty as hell. 
you know, the smells, like we'll go look at the cards that, you know, keep track of the attendance and like, we'll be fine cards that haven't had a check mark on it in years. Right. And they're not really practicing what they're doing or they say they're doing. And then like whenever, I don't think I've been to one of your schools personally, actually, I've only been out to California like once or twice, but never, never to Sacramento area. But whenever we have someone on our team go, they always talk about how like, how strong your bench is in your schools, how amazing the instructors are. And like how like the third or fourth best instructor is still an amazing instructor. What would be like most schools would be lucky to have that person as a first instructor. So long term, if someone's like, okay, I want to build my school, not just to last for the next two or five years, but for the next 10 or 20 or 30 years, like what's, what's the secret or what do you do for longevity? Yeah, well, first and foremost, just back to the book comment, I'm a big fan of of having you know, books that speak to you that you reread. I think that's way more valuable. I'm also in the same way. I said, like, I've got a dozen or so books that I've read 10 times, right? And I get a lot of, and I've also given myself permission. If there's a book I'm a few pages in, I used to, like, regardless, finish the book once I started. Oh, yeah, yeah. And now if the book doesn't grab me, I give yeah. myself permission to not waste my time. Yeah, you feel um, like so, a failure a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, so back to the schools, I think, thank you for the compliment. I'm really super proud of my team is I, I think first and foremost, I think it's important for anybody listening that if you are looking for options is martial arts is a great career option. You know, people don't really look at it that I know my generation, it was my parents tried to talk me out of it forever. You know, I don't know what your parents did because your older brother had already been such a good example. Yeah, they tried to talk me into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I went the opposite direction. Yeah, yeah. but so so I think that, uh, uh, you know, just for people that are wondering, it's such a great lifestyle. You know, you're doing something where you're making a difference, doing something you love and you importantly can make a really good living doing it. And, and so it's like, I think it should be looked upon like people look at other professions, right? But for us, uh, you know, the, the kind of the motto when it comes to staff training is hire right, train right, right. Okay. What does that mean? You got to start with the right person. And in order to have the right person, you have to have a big selection because if you're trying to hire someone and you've got three people and none of them are quite the right one, you hire the one that's least bad, mm-hmm. it's still not the right person. Yep. Does that make sense? So you got to cast a really broad net by talking to a lot of people about it and starting early, planting seeds early and often with lower belt students. And hopefully, you know, eventually you're going to have someone that's the right person that's got that quality. And then once, then that's the step number one. The step number two is you got to train them right because the right per, the person that's got all the right qualities if they don't know what they're doing they're not going to be successful right so that's having a really very formal training process and it's also i think it's really important that you hire them right the train them right the first time because if you let somebody develop some bad habits let's just say you hire someone to answer the phone and you don't really give them a talk teach them how to do it okay just answer the phone be nice they pick up the phone and next thing you know they've been doing it for two or three weeks they developed their kind of shtick so to speak and then you realize wait that's not what i want you to do and follow this outline well now they have to unlearn their their old habit. But if you hire someone out of the gate and train exactly how you want it, there's no bad habits, mm-hmm. right? So that's that's number two. And then the third step is treat them right. Now you can have some people that you that are a great person that you treated, you, you train really well and treat right that's going to move on regardless of how good you treat them. And there's going to be some people, no matter how bad you treat them, or they're never going to leave, right? But mm-hmm. the majority of people if you treat them right, they're going to be with you. So for us, that's kind of like, what does that mean, man? Is go to battle for your team, you know, be really mindful of where they are in their life. If, you know, their child needs to, there's a 
baseball game they want to go watch, make sure to help them find a way to get the school covered so they can watch it. You know, mm-hmm. in other words, be try to be the boss that you'd want to work that you'd, you'd want to work for. Bottom line, that's kind of been our formula, and it's not rocket science, but it works really well. We try to acknowledge our people for a job well done. We try to hold them accountable. You know, and so them they can aspire to to be a better version of themselves, so to speak. And for the most part, it works pretty good. So what's like any new recent things you've like implemented for your staff that's been like really helpful over the past year or two? You know, I think uh, since COVID, we've tried to get, we're really trying to focus on getting back to some of the old habits we had prior to COVID that we kind of let go. You know, we were in, during COVID, we were like, like so many people just in survival mode. All right, let's just figure out how we can handle this. And as far as developing the next generation of instructors, that wasn't really on our mind then, right? And so what happened, and as far as doing like Black Belt Club talks or getting intent to promote letters to potential students that are going to be moving up a belt rank, we just kind of, a lot of that stuff just let go. So right now we've got a, basically a retention challenge that we're focusing on our first 100 days. That's what we're doing. All the things we can do to make sure that we can keep as many people as possible in our first 100 days, knowing that if we can do that, then the odds of us holding them for an extended period of time are dramatically increased. Is there anything that you do during the first 100 days that's like really notable? You feel like, oh, schoolers need to do this. Yeah, well, it would be, for me, it's the eight-step student progress check, and you've mm-hmm. been through it a bunch of times, yeah. and, and, and it's it's really just making sure that I think where we're weakest as an industry is communicating with families where where they are in the process, you know, and I think that's something that uh, is always a good use of time. Well, and if you're listening to this, you're like, what is that? And you can send me an email, and I'll run you through it. And basically, you're just checking in with students to make sure that they're in a really good spot, they're seeing the progress that they want, and you're still aligned with, with the goals that they want. Mm-hmm. And if you don't do it, like, you need to. Because if you're only having real conversations with students or their parents when you're asking for more money or when they're upset, it kind of sucks. Like it's not a fun position to be in, but it's like a really fun conversation. It has nothing to do with money or upgrading, nothing to do with them being upset. You're just checking in. And also like my favorite part of that, like one of the, I think so the first part is to just thank them for being there. Yeah. Sure. Right. Like I go to a gym, I go to a jujitsu school and I've, you know, obviously pay for other subscriptions or services. Almost never. I think that's probably never. Has anyone ever sat me down and said, Hey, thanks for, thanks for being a member here. I really yeah. appreciate it. I might get an automated email. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, 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 which is great, but that doesn't, it's not the same. It's not the same. You know, it's not the same. And I think what's important for people to understand is that we go where there's a strong emotional connection and we'll do business with somebody that's more expensive, that's further away, less convenient because we have an emotional connection with that person. And that's really the X factor that can make our business unique, right? And like, by the way, I, I'm all for having a really effective online presence and stuff that yeah. happens normally and auto, auto, you know auto-generated texts and emails, that's all great, okay? But you know what, honestly, if I pull my phone out right now and I look at my emails, first thing I'm gonna do is I'm gonna delete most of them. And if you think that that email you're sending to your students that wishing them a happy birthday, okay, most people are savvy enough to know it was probably computer-generated, you, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And you think that's enough, then that's, that. you know, there's nothing wrong with sending it, but you think they're reading it, they're not reading it. In almost any case, they're not reading it, right? Mm. And so that's why that follow-up, like, you know, one-on-one conversation would you have with somebody is so valuable. And I think the more people become more automated, 
the more important like a one-on-one relationship is that all of a sudden our ability to really emotionally connect with a student just or a parent someone comes in and you 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 have a relationship with them and you're happy to see them and you shake their hand and you ask them how they're they, you know they just took a trip to to Florida last weekend how'd that go and you know you know how'd your golf game go because you knew that about them and I mean that kind of stuff really adds up now all of a sudden you know there there's a connection there and I have a contractor that works on our house that's not super cheap, probably not the most expensive. Okay. But they certainly charge a fair price for the work, but I know him. I trust him. He's a good guy. I like him. And I know he's not taking advantage of me, but he's, you know, he's charging retail because that he's a high level guy. Then that's what's worth it. And I'm okay with that. I don't know if I'm making any sense or not because I have an emotional connection. I'm not going to go with the cheapest bidder. And I think in our business, that's important for people to understand is that like, you know, it doesn't matter what the guy down the street is charging for lessons. Yeah, it means zero. It means zero. Every now and then you might get someone that, that shops two or three people that's looking, but that's such a small percentage. If someone comes into your school and they like you and they like what you're doing, they believe, they, they see the values and benefits, you tell them how much it, you know, it, it costs. If they can afford it, they're going to write the check. It doesn't matter what the guy down the street's doing. And so that's why I think the, one of the most important things we can do is as we become more automated is make sure that we keep a real personal connection with our students. Yeah. And the cool part is like you can marry the two, like you can have personal connection with technology. So for instance, you know, I got a check for doing this currently. I just reminded me about it, this conversation, but I know in the past what we've done is every month we'd have our instructors do a personal video message for the kid's birthday. Hey, it's Mr. Brenner from Action. I'm just checking in to wish you a happy birthday. Hope it's an amazing birthday. We're doing such a good job in class. We love having you. It could be a great black belt someday. Exactly like that. Mm-hmm. Eight seconds. Mm-hmm. And they record all the videos. And then they would schedule the birthday video to go to those kids the day before their birthday. Love it. So always the day before that, because the day of you kind of get lost in it, right? But the day before is like you're the first one. Oh yeah, they would. Sorry, the part of the script was, hey, I know it's not your birthday that, but today, but I want to be the first one to wish you a happy birthday, that's right? Great. And you stand out, right? And so you can kind of use both. No, that, that's perfect because it's a custom. It's a first, but you're doing it in a kind of a formal strategy. No, that's perfect. That's a yeah. great way to marry them together.